Sentire Media. Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. Episode 41, A Runaway Pope and the End of the Fox. We left off last episode with the death of Pope Gregory VII in exile in Salerno. He had struggled all of his papacy to implement a substantial reform of the Church and against Holy Roman Emperor Henry IV over the practice of investitures, the nomination of bishops and the wealth and lands that came with the title. Although he had made some progress in the reform, all in all, you could say he had lost the fight against Henry. In the end, his downfall had come not at the hands of Henry, but because of his opening the gates of the city of Rome to the rampaging Normans of Duke Robert Giscard. Although the emperor was heading off north and the city was, let's say, liberated, Gregory was not safe there because the Romans blamed him for the destruction caused by the Normans. Matilda of Canossa and her defeat of the imperial troops at Sorbara in 1084, therefore, made little difference. Speaking of the Countess, we'll talk a lot more about her in the coming episodes, and she'll get her own special episodes as we finish off with the 11th century. For now, a new Pope was needed. To complicate matters further, in the absence of Gregory from the city, Clement III, the anti-Pope chosen by Emperor Henry, had managed to get back into Rome. So the whole business had to be conducted with an anti-Pope sitting on the papal throne in Rome, blowing his nose at them and calling their mothers hamsters. It was in this complicated climate that the reform group around Gregory VII set to finding him a successor. Now, Although Pope Nicholas II had tried to set out some fixed rules for electing a new pope back in 1059 that moved the practice a bit closer to the modern-day procedure with the conclave of cardinals, the rules hadn't really been followed that much. We have seen that Gregory himself had been elected by acclamation, i.e. acclaimed by the people of Rome and the bishops hanging around at the time. This had been used as an argument by the imperial camp to point to Gregory's illegitimacy and cause the old pope quite a few headaches. Now, Gregory broke with the rules once more, even after his death. Before dying, it had been the pope himself to name a possible group of successors to the papacy. Among these was Desiderius, head of the important monastery of Monte Cassino. It may be worth stopping for a second to consider just how important important is. Generally speaking, in the Middle Ages all monasteries were quite important. They accumulated a considerable amount of wealth 
with all the donations made by nobles, both in life and in their wills. They were centers of culture, perhaps except for the beginnings of university activities in cities such as Bologna and Parma, the only centers of culture and study at the time. Not only this, but they also had considerable farmland, animals and craftwork, and could help support the local community. Monte Cassino, in particular, did a lot for the sustenance of nearby Rome. It was this monastery, that of Monte Cassino, that Desiderius was the head of. He was well-loved, well-fed and well-off. So, when the corps came to leave this cushy, comfy life for the chaos, stress and outright danger of Rome, you can imagine that he wasn't that keen on the idea. His predecessor, Gregory, had made a big show of refusing the job, following the ancient Roman custom, according to which, if you say you don't want the job, then you're the right man for the job. So if you wanted the job, you had to try and prove that you didn't want it. Desiderius really, really didn't want the job at all. How do we know it wasn't just a ruse? Well, he was elected on the 24th of May, 1086. How long was it before he even attempted to make a move towards taking up his position? Ten months. That's how long it took those who had elected him to convince him to accept. In the end, accept he did, and he took the name of Victor III. The people of Rome and the reform group were not the only ones pushing for Desiderius to be Pope. He was also the man that the Normans wanted to see on St. Peter's throne. They knew him well. He had acted as an envoy for Pope Gregory to the Normans, and they were basically neighbours. Furthermore, by this time, the Normans were looking for some stability. Indeed, on the 17th of July, 1085, the great Norman warrior, Duke of Calabria and Puglia, conqueror of southern Italy and Sicily, had died. We'll look into that in greater detail in a bit. So, the first order of business in a new job is to go and sit in your office. The problem in this case was that someone else was sitting in the comfy swivelly chair, and that someone was anti-Pope Clement III. Victor III made an attempt at getting into Rome, saw it wasn't going to happen, and with great determination, with great courage and spirit, he turned around and went back to Monte Cassino for a year. At this point, back on the scene, came the Countess Matilda of Canossa. The fact that Henry IV was hanging around back in Germany had allowed her to take back some of the lands that he and her rebellious subjects had taken from her and to move more freely. When news reached her that the new Pope, Victor III, had tried to get into Rome and had then turned around and headed back, she donned her golden spurs, jumped on her horse and made her way down to drag him back to Rome. I can just imagine the exchange when she got there. What's all this? We're going back to Rome right now. 
But I don't want to go to Rome. It's horrible, and I don't like it. It's your responsibility. Make someone else do it. It's your duty to God and to all Christianity. But Clement is mean to me. Oh, grow up! You grow up. In the end, with a bit of carrot and a bit of the stick, she managed to convince him, and together. They returned to Rome. This time, a real battle ensued, and the forces of Matilda were able to free Saint Peter's. However, they were not able to free the whole city. For a year, Rome was divided with continuous skirmishes in the streets. In the confusion, believe it or not, Desiderius, Pope Victor the Third, while everyone was looking the other way, snuck back to Monte Cassino again. Matilda went back and once again dragged him back to Rome, where in the fighting Saint Peter's was won and lost four times. Once more, Desiderius snuck off back to Monte Cassino, and this time he found a way for Matilda to leave him there in peace. On the sixteenth of September, ten eighty-seven, he died. Nothing makes it difficult for you to be dragged back to Rome and made pope. Like dying. So ended the short pontificate of Desiderius of Monte Cassino, Victor the Third, the runaway pope. Needless to say, it wasn't the most productive of papacies. In his defence, he was already sixty at the time of his election, in the prime of youth nowadays, but a ripe old age in the eleventh century. So. Towards the end of the year ten eighty-seven, a new pope was needed once again, in a situation of particular instability. Rome was a battleground. In the north, the struggle of Matilda to regain her lands from rebellious cities and vassals, as well as the struggle against the emperor, continued. Even in the south, where Norman domination had brought a certain level of stability, the waters. Were becoming agitated. The problem in the south was the kind that often comes around when a strong statesman disappears from the scene, which had been the case of Robert Giscard. We had last left the Giscard, the fox, as he was leaving a wounded Rome after taking it in just a day from the forces loyal to anti-Pope Clement the Third. He then made his way back to Salerno with Pope Gregory in tow. Robert now turned his attention back to some unfinished business: his fight against the Byzantine Empire. We haven't bothered much with our friend the Byzantines for a while, so let's take a moment to catch up with them. The last Byzantine-occupied territory in all of Italy. Had been the city of Bari in Puglia, the heel of the boot, and it had fallen in the year 1071, marking the definitive expulsion of the Byzantines from Italy, something that the Lombards had not managed to do in centuries. I hope to be able to do a revision episode on the Byzantines in Italy to do a little more justice to their presence in the peninsula. The Eastern Roman Empire, therefore, 
had lost its last foothold in Italy. But it didn't go that far away. It was still in full control on the other side of the Adriatic from Italy, Illyria, the Balkans. So that is where Giscard took the fight. In May of 1081, he took around 16,000 men over the sea. He was very quickly able to gain a foothold thanks to the immediate surrender of the garrison at Corfu, which then allowed him to make his way up to the strongly guarded city of Dyrrhachium. There, he used the fleet to blockade the port of the city. Unfortunately for the Normans, the Byzantine emperor Alexios I had made preparations and had sent a request for help to the Doge of Venice, Domenico Selvo. Now, although Venice had originally been a Byzantine possession and was still nominally an ally of the empire, they had really been doing their own thing for quite some time now. Having said this, the Venetians had no interest in the Normans gaining control over their precious trade routes, so they intervened, defeating the less experienced Norman fleet commanded by the son of Robert Giscard, Bohemond. Keep that name in mind. Old Robbie wasn't about to give up, though, so he simply laid siege to the city via land. The job of the commander of the city, George Palaoilogos, was to hold out until the emperor himself could arrive with a relieving army. Meanwhile, the Normans mercilessly pounded their city with their catapults and ballistas and attempted to breach the walls with their siege tower. The siege lasted all summer with great acts of heroism from the city's commander, who, in one of the many sorties he made out of the walls, fought almost all day with an arrowhead lodged in his skull. Another sortie managed to destroy the Norman siege tower. Things got even worse for the Normans when the Byzantine fleet arrived, joining the Venetians and inflicting another defeat on the Normans. Then disease hit Robert's army and the soldiers died by the thousands. This was the potentially advantageous scene that Emperor Alexius found when he arrived in October of that year. Time and numbers were on his side, and many of his advisers counselled caution and patience. He did not listen. The Battle of Dyrrhachium took place on the 17th of October, 1081, and, despite things going well for the Byzantines at the beginning, the end result was a crushing defeat for the Emperor. Just a few months later, the city itself fell to the Normans. It was at this point that Giscard was called back to Italy to help Pope Gregory, as we saw in the last episode, and, while he was in Italy, he left the situation on the other side of the Adriatic in the hands of his son, Bohemond, who, after some further initial successes, managed to lose all of the lands his father had conquered. After he was done in Rome, Robert Giscard returned with 150 ships, occupied Corfu and Cephalonia. This could have been the start of a great conquest, and perhaps even a Norman Empire, but it was not to be. On the 17th of July, 1085, as we have seen, Robert Hauteville, the Giscard, the Fox, died of fever at the age of 70, still going strong.
In the next few episodes, we'll see how things played out among the Normans as they completed their conquest of Sicily. We'll also see how Matilda managed to deliver a terrible blow to Henry IV. But most of all, we'll see a new Pope who set in motion one of the most well-known events in human history. As always, thanks very much to everyone for listening. Thanks in particular to my lovely Patreon supporters, the Anita and Giuseppe Garibaldi level, Roberta, Sean and Jeff, the Matilde di Canossa and Mazzini level, Benjamin, the Margherita Hack and Galileo Galilei level, Chris, Stephen, Vincent, Jay, Shelby, Caitlin, Ben, Dean, Ignazio and Silene. And the top level, Dante Alighieri and Maria Montessori, Sen. Remember that you can get in touch, hello at ahistoryofitaly.com, with comments, questions, or just to say hello. At the same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com, you can find timelines, maps, and images. If you have a little bit of extra time, if you wouldn't mind leaving a review, that would be really great. And if you would like some extra content and to help support the program, you can also go over to Patreon, A History of Italy, or perhaps donate on PayPal via the site. Thanks very much to everyone once again, and until next time, arrivederci. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.